Greetings, future fossils. It is spring of 2017 here in Austin, Texas. And in the spirit of all of this green growth and vitality and curiosity and play and adventure swirling about, I'm going to take this opportunity to experiment with the format of this show a little bit while it's still young and finding its identity. And also, with this episode in particular, invoke the spirit of Dr. Bruce Damer, with whose help I just recently toured Australia, giving talks on the history and future of life. Bruce has a podcast called The Levity Zone, which serves as a vehicle not only for interviews that he conducts, but also as a record of his public talks. And it seems future fossils may actually be a better vehicle for publishing this kind of ephemera than what I've been doing traditionally, which is posting all of my talks to evolution.bandcamp.com. I'm going to leave that up as an archive of what has come before, but it just seems better to get it all in one place. So, this talk was at the first official meeting of the Australian Psychedelic Society at the Fitzroy Beer Garden, and I want to give a shout out to Nick Wallace for organizing this event as well as the In Psychedelia radio show. It's, it's really cool to see how people in a different place, in this case in Melbourne, Victoria, are organizing around issues of sensible drug policy. And this very well-educated, intelligent, playful, creative group of people invited me to give a talk on our psychedelic future. So <laughs> I had a lot of fun with this talk. And I'm really glad that I was asked the specific questions that people asked about transhumanism and teledildonics. This isn't the normal structure of an episode, but it is actually a pretty good introduction into the inspiration for this podcast in the first place and the consideration of these issues of what it means to be alive right now in this particular time and place, what it means to be a human being. Because I feel like that's the root issue of all of this, that as Hunter Motz said recently on an episode of Christopher Ryan's Tangentially Speaking, the consequence of travel is detribalization, that is, stepping outside of your own culture and its concomitant basket of expectations and seeing other cultures, other perspectives, and realizing what it is that... that chewy nougat center at the core the human condition what is it to be truly human and not merely american or australian or martian or whatever if we're going to establish a planetary culture it would make sense to start with the basics like what is a human being we can't really affect a humanist or a humanitarian agenda or even discuss these values without getting back to that axiomatic issue. And our humanity is changing right now. It's, it's an open question. But luckily, through that opening, a lot of curiosity, creativity, discovery, and play can occur. And that is the spirit in which I invite you to enjoy this talk I gave on the blessing and curse of living in interesting times. Hey, 
thanks everybody for welcoming me so warmly. I've been two weeks in Australia, and uh, it's been a, an absolute treat. I've been wanting to come out here since we got the first whiff of the 2008 economic recession in the United States, and all of my friends were convinced that the federal emergency team was going to throw us all into concentration camps. Uh, so I, I was like tugging my girlfriend's arm in 2008. Let's move to Australia. And then, of course, you know, here we are. And uh, things have gotten inconceivably worse <laughs> for us. But, you know, I'm not Chinese. I'm a quarter Irish. And so you have these, these two different perspectives on transformative change, living through an era of extraordinary novelty, to put it in the language of Terence McKenna, that according to Chinese, you know, they, they valued order, stability, balance. You know, they're cursed. May you live in interesting times. Well, we're all cursed, if that's a curse. But then, of course, the Irish have this thing, may you be alive at the end of the world. <laughs> it's a toast. And so I think, you know, it's like, well, that's how I know that I'm, I've got a little bit more of that in me. Because I'm excited to be alive right now in spite of, and in fact, probably because of all of the anxiety in the air around the world right now, that we're living through an age that I understand as somebody who went to school as an evolutionary biologist and really spent my entire life studying natural history and the origins and destiny of self-organizing molecules on the thin membrane of living goop that circumferences our planet, that what we're going through now is actually not completely unprecedented in Earth history, that we've been through similar processes. If we want to speak the royal we, meaning life, meaning living creatures, that we have been through this before. And actually, there's quite a bit that a study of Earth history will teach us about the unique challenges that are facing human culture at this particular moment and the evolutionary challenges of this planet in general. So even though I harangued these guys for like half an hour last night about the work of Bruce Damer, scientist Bruce Damer, to whom I have to issue extraordinary thanks for helping me organize this tour. Bruce is a computer scientist, a psychonaut, and an origins of life researcher. Yes, yes, he was a consultant for NASA on asteroid mining as well. A real gentleman scholar, someone that I, I look up to as an example of how you can chameleon-like navigate through these many different worlds. You know, the defense security suits on the one hand and then the burners on the other. He's really good at moving between these worlds, which I think all of us are kind of called to do at this time. Because, you know, that part of this process, as I mentioned in my talk at, at Mycelium Studios, at the show with Joe on Friday, that part of what's going on right now is that this new complex environment that in which we find ourselves is requiring us to level up our own psychological complexity and adopt different perspectives and different ideas and different selves as befits these appropriate situations that we're to the extent that we recognize that who we believe ourselves to be is a story that our brain is creating instinctively and automatically that we can be more conscious about that 
and we can inhabit different self-concepts as suits us. And that, in fact, one of the one of the major issues that we're facing now as a species of people that can't seem to get it together, can't seem to agree with one another, is being able to enter the mind of another person to th- see things from their point of view, to be the other. And so this sounds really hard, maybe, because we've, we've spent so much time saying, well, I'm this and I'm not that. But to riff on the work that Bruce Damer is currently doing now on the origins of life, it really shouldn't be that hard because the fact of the matter is that what we're learning about the very earliest forms of life on this planet was that it wasn't like suddenly the cell occurred out of nothing with a membrane on it and, you know, a credit card debt and alimony payments. Like, it, it, this happened in stages, you know, and, and the first stage, what we believe the earliest life form to be, what they call Luca, the last universal common ancestor, wasn't really like a thing with a membrane on it, but a soup of self-reproducing molecules that didn't really have clear self-other division. And that even now, bacteria are very promiscuous and free about the exchange of their own genetic information with one another. The reason why, if you want to think about it in terms of human ingenuity versus bacterial ingenuity, the human intellect, this highly evolved thing, has basically fought with antibiotics, germ intelligence to a stalemate. Like, we're actually as smart as germs, which is a major evolutionary accomplishment. <laughs> but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that it's, it's about the, the distribution of different kinds of intelligence between rapid genetic flexibility and a rather genetically conservative organism, the human being, that works most of its magic through the exchange of ideas. It just happens now that we're, we're kind of moving back into this, this mode of being that we see as the, you know, the last universal common ancestor, this freely exchanging genetic plenum, if you will. The same way that we have idea sex now, the same way that we're able to freely exchange concepts with one another, memes with one another. We're at the point now in our digestion of the, the boundary between nature and technology where we're recognizing that there are certain things that we can repurpose, certain aspects of our own microanatomy that we can repurpose as technologies, uh, specifically the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing complex, which was discovered just a few years ago as a way to keep viral DNA from infecting our own nucleic genome, the nucleosome, that we, we can edit this molecule to snip out diseases from our genes and in theory add new traits so we're actually very close to a point where in the, much in the same way that you know they, they say software eats the world you know that this is the, the what we're going through now that when everyone has a 3d printer at home then you're not going to go to a a dealer you're going to print your own drugs you're not going to go to a gun store you're going to 3d print your own handgun I'm from Austin, Texas, and the guy that invented the 3D printed handgun and terrified the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Administration is also from Austin, Texas. He calls himself a villain, and he celebrates it because the villain, after all, historically, was the representative of the village that stood up and attempted to reclaim that stolen wealth 
from the noblery. So we have this we have this weird uh, residue of moral assignment in our language that the rich are the good, the noble, whereas the poor the, are the are the evil ones, the villains. But at any rate, it does seem that we're we're entering in some sense a more villainous world because all of these things that have been stored up in bank accounts and underground reserves, the various ways that we have hoarded things according to this mistaken notion of selfhood that each of us are discrete entities, individual, independent of one another, that this is coming apart and we're recognizing that each of us is a village. So, of course, in a way, you can say that you're made out of villains. And, of course, that's the old Luciferic call me legion for my names are many. But this is true, that each of us is an entire community. And so this shift, this movement towards recognizing each of us as a community, and then also that community, therefore the self, as we were talking about last night, Melissa and I, about how the brain and selfhood is made out of these groups, these networked modes of different parts of the brain acting in concert or in tension with one another, that you can actually... By a study of neuroanatomy, you can examine how what you see as this individual thing, this self, is actually made out of little pieces that are made out of smaller pieces that are made out of smaller pieces, and that you're sort of like a bouquet of these different modes and motifs at any given time, and that the real, the real magic of the human experience of consciousness anyway, is that the, I, would, I won't even say the human, because obviously we've all probably, I think everyone in this room has been into a state of consciousness where your multiplicity is much more obvious than it ordinarily is. You know, that you become aware, as, as the Buddha said, you know, that upon the, you know, the ripened examination of mind, you realize that this thing, this one story that you had, is actually made out of this mass of vectors of all of these different influences and causations coming from every imaginable angle. And that, as I say, perhaps too frequently, but I love this, this phrase, that each of us is the still point at the intersection of colliding infinities. So... In light of all of that, we're actually about to move back into a kind of uh, renaissance, a, a trans-technological, trans-nature renaissance in which we reclaim some of that genetic flexibility and the promiscuity of the exchange of the modules of identity by not just exchanging ideas, but also by exchanging physical traits through gene editing and also through the exchange of direct neural patterns to the, to the extent that we are able to actually record and template neural firing patterns from one brain into another. Everyone's brain is wired differently, so this is really actually super complicated, and no human will probably ever understand. This is something that we're going to achieve with the assistance of artificial intelligences. But insofar as technology is an extension of the living world and that actually it never escaped the living world, it's never been a separate from us in the same sense that we've never really been separate from the mineral or vegetable worlds, you know, or from, you know, this planet itself, that, that artificial intelligence as an extension of our own capacity for mind and experience and thought is getting us closer to this point where our notion of self is as fluid as the notion that we don't really have species of bacteria. I mean, we use that term. We have like E. coli and this kind of thing. But 
the further back in the story of life you go, the fuzzier these categories become because the simpler forms of life are able to exchange selfhood, exchange what they call plasmids, little rings of DNA, so much more fluidly and, and openly with one another. And we see this everywhere. We see this with the sharing economy. As one social example, we see this with non-monogamous relationships and that whole conversation as one example. We see this with the, the notion of the global citizen and you know the increasingly irrelevant definition of national borders in light of the, the fact that we're starting to recognize that the real, the real lines of power in the world, Parag Khanna talks about this in his book, Connectography, that the real lines of, of influence and power in the world are organized along infrastructure. So you can't really have a wall between the United States and Mexico because there, there are pipelines and freight routes and all of these other things that, that establish that the only thing that is keeping us from, in, in that particular case, from fully outing ourselves as a functioning North American union is this fear-based story that we, we have to fear the people that we're actually already completely intertwingled with on an economic and cultural level that we actually uh, require the other in order to define the self and so we're going around like i don't know if you guys ever saw that it's a terrifying youtube video of this dog on a couch its leg kind of sneakily comes up to scratch the dog's ear and the dog turns around and starts snarling at its own leg and it's like that's that's us right now so we're snarling at our own body parts. We're, we're, we're dissociated as a species, and, and, and rightly so, in a sense, because when you think about what Alvin Toffler called future shock, this notion that when change happens so fast as it's happening now, as it was happening even in the 1970s, people tend to dig in their heels and insist on these concrete fundamentalist categories people get literal you know people want something stable and again this is something that we can understand if we look at life history we can look at how in a way the story of what makes us human is our ability to release that constriction release that intense fixation on the familiar because you know you look at the earliest vertebrate the earliest animal with a backbone is the descendant the very close descendant of a creature quite like what today we call a sea squirt or a tunicat it's this little thing that floats around in the water plankton like as a larval form and until it fixes to a rock and its adult stage of development is it becomes this sedentary filter feeding creature not unlike the human beings sitting in their virtual reality crushes in wally -E. this is the sort of mature form of human beings a, you know a disembodied mind associated to just plugged into a uh, ivs and sex robots and stuff so uh but like that's that's clearly not the future we want right so uh at least m most of us and i think the future's wide enough to accommodate everybody so, you know, you have my blessings if that's your game, but you're, you know, you're kind of, you know, irrelevant to the political process uh, in this particular case. So the first fish is basically the larval form of this ancient sea squirt that never grew up. It, re it reached sexual maturity while still in its sort of free floating swimming thing. And so it's that 
If you look at why an animal fixes itself to a rock, it's because of tidal forces. It's because of the intensity of the changes in its environment. And there are kind of two strategies for that. One is to burrow down and sink roots into the thing and maintain tradition. And another thing is to release, to relax, and, and then form schools of fish that are bound by this sort of instinctual collective action and you know you see that you see over and over and over again in human in the lineage of life that led to us as human beings you see this juvenile form the creative playful curious that form becomes sexually active earlier than it would ordinarily be and so now you know to fast forward 500 million years and our nearest relatives, the bonobos and the chimpanzees, look a whole lot like us as infants. And then there's a point where their puberty sort of like rockets past ours while we stay more or less in a juvenile primate form and we retain the neuroplasticity of childhood throughout our enti- more or less throughout our entire lives. I mean, our, you know, our brains do slow down a little bit. But then again, it, it also turns out that you can reopen this critical learning window very easily with molecules like valproic acid, this anti-seizure medication, uh, which they found out was leading to an increase in the rate of autism among pregnant women, like autism in the children of pregnant women who are taking the seizure medication. The hypothetical basis for this is that autism may be, in fact, due to a brain that is capable of, it's like a, a hyper-learning brain that's adjusting in the same way as these, these larval tunicates adjusted to a, a, a complex and difficult environment. So the, the thing is to learn as fast as possible. And so these women taking valproic acid, they end up sort of supercharging the already highly plastic brain. And, you know, this is still a theory. It's, you know, a very loose theory called the intense world syndrome hypothesis for autism. But the idea at least is that we're capable of keeping this relatively fluid, playful, curious, open attitude well into our adulthood precisely because the requirements, the requisites of our social organization require a brain that's constantly able to adapt to new information. So if you look at this trend moving forward, what do we get? We get beings that are even more social than we are, that are even more creative, even more fluid in their ability to transmute new identities you know to to adjust to new contexts and that that uh you know one likely future for the human species is what you call like a post-biological swarm of hyper-individuated beings because as as pierre terre de chardin said we're not looking forward to a a mere hive mind it's not going to be a borg thing because within each new membrane of identity Suddenly, all of this new diversity is required, all of this differentiation that, that the first city with a wall around it required the differentiation of labor and, and social classes in a way that the smaller, simpler communities of hunters and gatherers did not. And as we're arriving at a planetary culture, it's inevitable that we would start to see things like Burning Man, where individuality and the the unique expressive niche of all of these people is rewarded by a more mature ecosystem socially 
that the more species of mind, the more we necessarily honor and embrace neurodiversity as a strategy for a complex world and that we realize that this it takes a village to raise a child thing uh, is also in reference to the sort of it takes a planetary village to raise a cosmic planetary Christ that it like awakens through all of us at once if you can you know accept the, uh, the sort of overwrought religious language but Within this new matrix, I'm at a point now where like, I have a very hard time telling people what I do for a living, and I know a lot of people here probably do as well. It's not that we're necessarily coming to the end of jobs so much as it is that we're coming to a world in which everybody's job is basically unique to them. That this is sort of the end game here. I'm not the end game because the game never really ends. Evolution is an infinite game. But that a more complex social ecosystem that kind of we're moving into is one in which everyone is sort of following the beat of their own drum, their song, their intuitive guidance, their way in the world unique to them is in balance with all of the other little, as a historian, William Irwin Thompson talks about an amoeba covered in cilia, covered in these little rowers. All of those rowers used to be a free living bacterium in their own right called a spirochete. And then they, they joined forces so that this, this one large cell could be propelled by all of these small ones. And then they, they essentially formed a single entity. And we're looking at that now with the species where rather than a bunch of, you know, rather than everyone just waving an oar in the air at random, you know, trying to hit one another, that we're getting to a point now where as we awaken to a new center of gravity of a planetary identity first, recognizing that we're, we're basically participants in a biosphere, products of a biosphere, before we are Americans or gender, whatever, that creates the freedom within which all of us can be our own freaky selves and that that freak is actually rewarded because each of us is doing the thing that no one else can do. I feel like this is a, a big part of what I... When, when people ask me what I do for a living, I say, well, you know, it's like, I'm basically just modeling a new mode of existence in which I'm making the choice over and over and over again in my life that if I find out that I'm doing something that someone else is doing in my ecosystem, then I don't need to do it anymore. I'm liberated from that responsibility. And I can continue to push on and discover this, you know, what lies deeper in that negative space of unknowing of what he's called the negative capability of like, what don't I know about myself and how I fit into this thing? So I, that's, that's sort of uh, just a huge wrap. And I, <laughs> I don't know specifically what to say to you today because I don't know what your issues are other than the fact that you're, you know, like so many of us poised against the tyrannical crumbling skeleton of the state. But yeah, I mean, I kind of want to just open it up at this point. And I, at the end, you know, I can play some songs and I, I do want to like turn you on in a different way at some point. But I do want to open this to conversation first. So if anybody has something that they would like to add to this or a question that I can pretend to answer as though I'm an expert in something, then please come up here and speak it into the mic if you can so that I can uh, get this on record for all of those unborn future archaeologists. Great. Thank you, Michael. Uh, my question for you is actually very pertinent to world peace. I know that world peace starts at home, and that's why uh, all of us should be very focused on our relationships 
because uh, the happier individuals are within their relationships and the community, the happier we'll be collectively. I'm just wondering what you think the role of uh, teledildonics will be in that, that enterprise. Thank you. You're an audience plant. <laughs> teledildonics. Am I allowed to talk about this with children? Well, the fact of it is that all of them are going to be using it eventually. Sorry, parents. <laughs> this, this is the notion that you know the, the new media, the telecommunications media, that we are now surrounded by and embedded in sort of the human beehive, uh, the honeycomb of this invisible electromagnetic environment. Not, not actually for much longer invisible because we're learning that we're going to be able to, uh, to adapt the human being to seeing in wider swaths of the electromagnetic spectrum. So it may be possible, it's already possible for some people and it may be possible for most people in the next 10 or 20 years to actually look out and see the, uh, the smog of cell phone towers or Wi-Fi routers or this kind of thing. The heat of a ninja otherwise clothed against the night. But this invisible environment, to borrow the, McLuhan, the Marshall McLuhan phrase, that we're all swimming in this soup of electromagnetic radiation, we're going to be more and more defined as field-based electromagnetic creatures as we become more and more aware of the original cybernetic term, the, the definition of cyborg, cybernetic organism, which is every organism. It's redundant. The cybernetics, you know, a, a cyborg is simply a, a, a complex, self-regulating living system, and all of those things are a system of inputs and outputs, and all of us are permeable to our environments and, and learn from and give to them. And when you look at it in terms of like, what is a human being? Well, a human being is a pattern that occurs within a field of organization. You're never the same stuff from moment to moment. Even the same atoms are sort of blinking in and out of virtual particle states. So what are you sort of more fundamentally than a pile of you know, soup and bones. You are the the pattern of information that exists within this electromagnetic field. And then as Penn State information scientist Richard Doyle is fond of reminding people, information, as cyberneticist Gregory Bateson said, it is the difference that makes a difference. Information doesn't exist unless it's observed unless it's understood that information and consciousness are actually two perspectives on the same thing. And so to recognize ourselves as more fundamentally fields of information is to recognize ourselves as more fundamentally a, a non-duality of material and immaterial. And so in light of that, this issue of teledildonics... <laughs> which is the, uh, the remote sexual stimulation. You know, I actually wonder about this because the more aware we become of ourselves as electromagnetic phenomena, the more we're going to be concerned with the kind of poorly designed electromagnetic systems that we're currently living inside of, the more we're going to become sensitive to the plight of the electro-hypersensitivity disorder sufferers, these people who experience physical pain when you turn on the television tube, who, who have to escape to rural places like Kauai or the valleys of Kentucky, where there are these 
these massive radio observatories so they don't allow radio stations anywhere near them and these this is the only place that these people can exist and live in these wooden houses with no electricity in them we're sort of numb to this stuff because we're, we're we it hasn't been emphasized for us but the more and more that this electromagnetic paradigm is emphasized for us, the more we're going to start redesigning our tools in a way that we're not constantly polluting ourselves with these chaotic electromagnetic fields. And the more we're going to start inventing technologies that work with electromagnetic fields that are actually beneficial to the human organism and to other organisms that encourage the germination of seeds that accelerate the healing of wounds. And we have all of this technology. And in fact, a lot of it is ancient, ancient technology. The, the, the geometry of temples has been demonstrated by people like physicist Dan Winter to accelerate living processes and to support this kind of stuff you know so the best place to die right now is actually inside of a gold-lined stupa or you know a, a rosette thatched cottage made out of living natural fiber that there are these structures uh, the fractional dimensionality of our building materials has everything to do with the kinds of electromagnetic interference that we're experiencing from our environments and so at any rate i think right now like the, the we're in this sort of like proto state with the kinds of tools and devices, the wireless devices that we use to augment ourselves. And we're going to find out that, you know, the his and hers wireless dildos where, you know, you're sort of transmitting a sensation by proxy across distance. Do you really want Bluetooth down there? I mean, I don't. Personally, I would rather wait until we're running it on a, a sort of different material matrix. But I don't necessarily believe that electronic technology is inherently uh, antinomial to the living cr creatures. It's just that, like fire, I mean, it literally is fire. So we have to learn to play with it safely and in ways, that, you know, the, in the same way that the metabolism of a human being is basically the same combustion and oxidation reactions as a flame but it's controlled in this very fine-tuned way so that it's supportive to the process of a creature. And in the same way, I think that we'll eventually find ways to live within this lattice of electronic wireless communication in ways that actually support the health of the human entity. And then we can get each other off wirelessly all the time. But then, of course, you get into the secondary issue, which is that pleasure rewires the brain far more effectively than pain as far as as brainwashing and mind control is concerned this has been known for at least 40 years that pleasure is five times more effective in controlling someone than pain and so really the thing that we should probably all be watching out for is the way that our pleasure circuits are being hijacked by entities that are, are using technology in the same way that the brightness of your cell phone screen is an immediate attractor to your attention. Because we have this thing of like, we want to see when something bright happens in the same way that we want to eat sugar in the environment. You got to eat all the available sugar. So we end up, all of us, you know, used to sit around a fire at night and now everybody sits around their own little, like a little blue flame. And we end up with 35, 40-year-old people that are experiencing the, the macular degeneration of a 70-year-old because we're overstimulating ourselves. And so the issue is like, yeah, it's going to be super amazing when I can tweet an orgasm to somebody, you know, when I'm like out of town and I, you know, I want to be like, 
the Japanese have been doing this for a while with the vibrators inside of a PlayStation game controller and you know, all of that. You know, there's, there's a whole trend culturally that we can look to them as pioneers in of like the boyfriend sits there playing video games and the, girl, the girlfriend sits there with controller two, you know, just enjoys watching the game. Go, go, score those points. That's all well and good. But then, you know, the problem is like, what are we programming ourselves to do, to be? The real shift isn't necessarily from viewing ourselves as like material object-based to field-based creatures. The real shift is from seeing ourselves as these self-authoring agencies in the world to these porous and continually programmed sort of democratic beings, that these, these agencies that are a sort of average of all of our connections and influences in the way that colloquially or anecdotally, you hear people say that you're the average of the five people that you hang out with the most. So you guys are doing really well in that regard because it's, it's good to be, you know, surround yourself with smart and creative people, people that encourage you to rise to the occasion. And then this is how we, you know, this is the progress of human culture is that what's considered an adult now is considerably more advanced than what was considered an adult 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, as evidenced by Game of Thrones. So, so you know, I think we can look forward to a future in which the average 30-year-old in 100 years has the savvy of, you know, a 60- or 70-year-old person today in the sense that we will recognize that the story that we talk about, that we tell ourselves about ourselves is something that can be tweaked, hacked, reprogrammed, assumed, dropped, that these identities end up becoming more like costumes that we are able to wear and then remove as appropriate. And that's, that's like the major shift that I see. And then, you know, so what that means in terms of the ways that we're triggering one another remotely the ways that we're allowing ourselves as we assume a more and more collective identity to be vulnerable to the influences of other people in the way that anyone with a pacemaker now is technically vulnerable to a botnet exploit where the computer in their pacemaker is being used to run a denial of service attack on Russia. You know, like the KGB, like, oh, my pacemaker is like taking down the KGB. It's like one one millionth of the CPU. This notion that as Charles Strauss in his book, Halting State, had the, a scene with self-driving cars in the year 2018, and somebody hacks the self-driving car and drives these police officers off a road. We have to figure out, this is the part of the anxiety of modern existence, is that as we become more and more transparent to one another, as we become more and more connected, we're becoming more and more vulnerable, and our definitions of security have to change accordingly. We're losing privacy in the sense that we know it, but then again, privacy isn't some ancient thing. The modern notion of privacy is really only about 200 years old, and even if you look at the frontier cabins in you know, America in the mid-19th century, entire families were sharing a single bed, Whenever they had guests over, those guests would stay in the one bed. And it wasn't like everyone on this block had their own barbecue and their own lawnmower. There was a, a much stronger sense of collective identity, even amidst the radically individualist forebears of Australia and the U.S., we've twisted this narrative to mean that everybody has to like leave home and go find themselves a thousand miles away and buy their own suburban mansion and all this bullshit. When in fact, the sort of steady state for human beings, the sort of basic wild type human being is 
principally identified with the community in which it exists is recognized as a part of a community first and then as an individual kind of second. And so rather than relying, as we have, on a conflated notion of privacy and security, we'll find new, new ways to be secure with one another, ways that are about mutual recognition and accountability, what they call covalence. Kevin Kelly talks about this a lot. We're afraid of surveillance because, as we should be, because that means someone else has more information about me than I do about him. As uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation wizard and Grateful Dead lyricist John Perry Barlow is fond of saying, he's like, I don't mind knowing whenever the government subpoenas my social media profile as long as I know who's doing it and when they're doing it and what they're asking for. That's fair, right? And then, of course, you know, you always have the issue of sex workers making sure that they've always got a buddy system going on so that if somebody has to go off with John, then somebody else knows where you are at all times. This is Google latitude. Share your location with your friends because the eye in the sky, like the eye of Sauron already knows where you are. So don't you want your friends to know where you are too? And more and more of our information is put online. Again, Kevin Kelly talks about this in his book, The Inevitable, 12 Technological Forces Shaping the Future. He talks about how a generation ago, it would have been inconceivable to share medical records. This is my private information. But now people are coming together and routing around the, uh, the medical institutions and they're, they're pooling their medical records and they're applying big data analyses to their medical records to detect patterns and to find new insights in this shared data that are able to, to, to improve the lives of everyone who's offering that information to the network. So it turns out that it's the power of networks, the scaling law, that actually is going to outcompete the sense of propriety and privacy, that a good idea is better shared, and that every idea becomes stronger when it's shared. And so in that sense, I think, as far as teledildonics are concerned, my only, my only real sort of uh, conservative or like retrogressive anxiety around that is that we end up creating some sort of like sex rock star person whose one recorded orgasm becomes the Beatles of orgasms. And then everybody is just having that one orgasm all the time. And then everybody's trying to like, like the monkeys and the turtles and all these other like wannabe acts show up and that we lose in some essence, the diversity of human pleasure that we once had because of the superstar effect, you know, that like everybody just wants that best that best one, and so we end up with like a planet, a planet-spanning Coca-Cola of, of cum. But it won't pollute you, except to the extent that it's uh, coming in with, uh, you know, malware associated with it. You know, every time you, oh, you would definitely want to open this email. Okay, well, that was fun for a minute, but now you have some digital STD. Next question. Yeah. Hi, my name's Thorin, and um, I hope that the next answer isn't quite so long, because <laughs> it'll take a while if we want to get through a few questions. Um, I used to be really optimistic about uh, extropianism and started getting into it in the 80s, but in the last sort of five to ten years, I've started to become quite uh, concerned. Extropianism? Um, it's the notion that we can become better versions of ourselves through technology, that we can make use of uh, technology to make our thoughts faster and, and better uh, uh, our capacity to think uh, uh, with more capacity to extend our uh, memory to uh, be faster stronger 
uh, whether it be through drugs or you know maybe more mechanical type technologies, that sort of thing. Is that sort of is that your yeah? Okay. My concern more recently has been that it is actually illusory and that it's actually a way of seducing us into a technocracy where we lose power, where we lose our autonomy. Do you share those concerns? I definitely do share those concerns, although I think it's important for us to not project our own uh, moral biases that you know come from our own specific limited cultural position onto other cultures in other times. I mean, I think it's economist Robin Hansen is fond of reminding people that however horrific his vision of a future with emulated human minds, explosively populating digital environments, you know, and like the lives of these people and their own existential weirdnesses, to us, it sounds like a bad DMT trip, this notion of never being sure that you that all your memories are fake and that you weren't just rebooted. But he's like, well, the fact of it is that you look back a couple hundred years, a couple thousand years, and you, you were to like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Plato or Socrates back from ancient Greece, and they would probably be terrified of the way that we're living. If you were to take any, anyone, the original uh, religious extremists that colonized North America from Europe, and you, know, you show these Puritans what became of Boston, Massachusetts, and they'll basically say, well, you know, hell on earth. So, you know, on the one hand, it's it's important to balance, to recognize that our own definitions of good and bad are sort of like, uh, to some extent, culturally relative, because different cultures value different things. But on the other hand, it's also the case that if our if our goal is the dignity of the human being, that our ability to choose the kind of lives that we want a lot of the fear that we have around this stuff is actually kind of uh, historically amnesiac because we're now living in, in such a state of extraordinary dependency on one another and the networks that we've created for one another that, you know, to suggest that a deeper intimacy and a deeper reliance on society and technology is somehow an abomination is to be intentionally blind to the ways in which every previous technological revolution was regarded and criticized in the same way. That when, you know, the evolution of writing happened, they're like, well, you're going to lose your memory. Your memory will degrade in light of this. And in some sense, that's true. And in some other sense, you know, we've moved from memory being understood as something locked inside your skull to something that's transmitted in culture. And that really, like, all of human culture is only possible because our nutrition got good enough that we started living long enough to be grandparents and, like, transmitting this stuff down through the generations and then writing it all down and transmitting it beyond the, the, the scopes of our lives and cultures. And in the same way, you know, we're seeing similar things going on in the East and in the West, the evolution of the chopsticks and the fork, respectively, shrank the human jaw fairly measurably. You know, we lost our ability to, to pre-digest food without these tools. And now we can't, like, really just, like, get at a turkey leg the way that a Cro-Magnon could get at it. And in fact, the human brain, the volume of the skull, the brain case of a human being has also shrunk noticeably in the last 50,000 years as we become more and more reliant on culture. So I'm always questioning my anxieties around this stuff. I mean, obviously, we don't want to be dependent upon fragile systems that, you know, could fail due to the way that the electrical grid right now could just be like destroyed overnight with a sufficiently large solar flare. Like we do need to make sure 
that we're putting in safeguards and redundancies and distributing things accordingly. But actually, in the same way that, you know, it becomes harder and harder to take down a YouTube video, copyright protection as a thing of the past, sort of, in light of the, the way that digital technology is essentially a giant copy machine and, and that massive parallel copying is part of this, that I think that the better we get at distributing the infrastructure rather than than centralizing it, the more we're going to be able to retain the best parts of what it is that makes us human without having to rely on these centralized technocratic agencies. But as we were talking about at Mycelium the other night, the tension between the technocrats and the mystics is like the defining feature of what historians call the meta-industrial society in the same way that the industrialist and the artist was before that or earlier culture and countercultural forms emerge in new ways in every historical age. So right now what we have is the technocrat that sees the whole world as a single system to be managed and the mystic that recognizes that that system is merely an idea existing within this infinite mystery and that the conscious and the unconscious are both essential to the self and that evil is a part of the self. So it gets tricky because I don't know that when this worldview matures, I'm not sure that we're going to be concerned about those same boundary lines because our emphasis will have moved. We will have redrawn our boundaries about what constitutes a person, this constellation of relationships that defines a person. And it might be more like, basically, in short, the difference that we're moving here from with respect to like how we engage technologies and augmentation is we're moving from a just say no, N-O, to a just say K-N-O-W approach to technologies. Let's just be more intentional about them. Let's be more aware of the way that our relationships in the world influence the people that we become. And, and I think that that's sort of more the thing, that we actually have more awareness of the ways that these subtle vectors of control, which have always been a part of human society, are influencing us as individuals. And like a meteor theorist, Douglas Rushkoff wrote a book called Program or Be Programmed. And I think that's, that's, that's very true to this situation. It's like, we're going to be programmed in one way or another. I mean, I am deeply concerned about this issue. I don't, I don't want to come off as sounding flippant, but I think that the answer to this issue is empowering people to take a more of an active responsibility in programming themselves and becoming the cyborg that they choose to be, that they want to be. A kind of a technological informed consent, you know? Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Future Fossils and leave us a review. It really helps us get these conversations into the ears of other people who will appreciate and benefit from them. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Michael Garfield. Patreon supporters get plenty of delicious perks as well. So go check it out. Be good to yourselves and have a beautiful century.